Okay, uh, welcome everybody. Today we have a very special meeting, also the last meeting of this semester. Um, but today we have uh, our interns of the Hall Politics Lab uh, presenting. So uh, really exciting. They uh, conducted an EEG pilot study this uh, last few months. We collected data, I think, well, we started three weeks ago, so it's really fresh, uh, the data. And um, yeah, first, uh, Diamantes will um, explain something about EEG, just give a general introduction uh, using EEG in a political science research. And then we'll start with uh, three presentations. So uh, Diamantes, uh, the floor is yours. Yes, hello, thank you, Mikey. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Hawk Politics uh, lab session. And as Mikey said, today it's a, it's a really special uh, day. We have uh, four people from uh, two different master programs on brain and cognitive sciences or neurosciences programs uh, here in Amsterdam. So at the Free University of Amsterdam and at the University of Amsterdam where we are situated at to be presenting some of their work uh, that they've been helping us to collect some um, uh, preliminary data, some pilot data uh and this is what they'll be presenting uh today so um, we've started actually considering the use of uh, eeg in the lab uh, as a way to tackle more deep into non-conscious processes that happen in the ideological brain so instead of for example looking for fundamental differences in the hard wiring of uh, liberals versus conservatives or like left-wing versus right-wing brains we instead actually choose to focus on differences in the processing of specific events or stimuli given different political contexts. Uh, by the way, uh, can you people see my screen? Yes, thank you. Okay, so um, as I said, uh, we have like four people, so I'm not gonna take a lot of time, but I really very briefly uh, want to ask that you bear with me because I'd like to very briefly introduce you to what EEG is all about at least in a nutshell, because EEG can be rather complicated. So EEG actually stands for uh, electroencephalography, and it's a method that uh, has been developed to measure a brain activity in response to stimulus events. EEG captures the deflection of neurons in scalp electrodes, so primarily activity that happens in the cortex of the brain, uh, and specifically caused by dipoles in the cortex of the brain. So differences, uh, between activity on two different sides of the brain. In other words, the EEG signal represents a sum activity of approximately 10 million neurons or so uh, within a very specific area of the cortex, uh, which creates a flow, like an electric flow, in response to a certain mental process. And just like to give you an example of that uh, more concretely, the brain comprises of numerous distinct networks which actually reflect the sound activity as i said of like millions of neurons that uh, operate as a team or as a, as a network and of course these neurons communicate with each other on the basis of synaptic activation um, uh, synaptic potentials that take place in the dendrites so in, in the accents of cells and how these relate to other cells to other neurons and this activity actually creates some electrical current between the two different neurons to put it this way which we can actually pick up the sum of this activity of like many neurons together. As you can see, like in this picture, we can pick it up by um, placing an electrode on the top of the scalp. This is completely non-invasive, so it's a very safe uh, procedure. Uh, it's portable and it's very time sensitive. So we can measure very precisely when in the brain uh, certain activity happens. 
neurons communicate, um, as I said, uh, with each other via these synaptic potentials. And we, re we refer to these um, uh, potentials as ERP, so event-related potentials, when they respond to specific events. But we also look on the frequency that these neurons fire at if we're looking on different questions. And I'll give you an example. In the picture you see uh, next, right here, uh, we see actually a grand mean event-related potential in response to a visual stimulus uh, that produces a stereotyped evo uh, evoked response over uh, parietal central electrodes, approximately 300 milliseconds uh, post-stimulus onset. So assuming that this zero, excuse me, this zero point is here, is um, the stimulus onset, then we can see that approximately 300 milliseconds after the onset of the stimulus, you can see this uh, like deflection in the electrical potential. So why do we do that? We do that because uh, these ERPs can be very, very useful in, in telling us um, how quickly the brain responds in light of a certain stimulus, uh, in light of, of a, a specific event that happens either because of external stimulation or an internal process. So EEG can really help us tackle that. Another example of how we can use EEG is, um, is to actually look on the oscillatory activity, which can further tell you which specific frequencies are present in the signal, but like over a certain time window. So instead of looking like specific events, we can actually look on what kind of frequencies are being activated over a larger uh, time window. And this can be uh, specifically interested, uh, particularly interested if we want to tie these uh, frequency bands to specific processes. And because we know how and like when, uh, under what um, um, certain frequencies the brain operates for what specific uh, events it processes, then we can really um, tackle brain activity, to put it this way, um, uh, over a certain time window. The presentations that follow our interns uh, will present actually examples of how we can use these measures to address research questions relevant to the field of political science. And, you know, just like to, to, to say that again, much of this work is like still work in progress and the data, uh, they just come from like nine first pilot participants. Um, without further delays, let me introduce you to, to the speakers. So first, uh, Caroline, Say hi to the people, Caroline. Uh, will first uh, present her work on how seeing emotional expressions in politicians engages the brain. Uh, then we have Xin Yao. Hello, Xin Yao. Um, uh, will tell us more about her work on power um, and responses in the uh, ultimatum game. And finally, Babke and Chris. Hello, guys. Uh, will present an experimental idea on how to capture ideological biases using EEG. So without further delay, I'll give the floor to, I'll pass the floor to, to Caroline. Let me share my screen. Yeah, so thank you uh, for the introduction, uh, Diamantis. I think it's very clear. Um, so uh, for now, um, I really enjoyed my internship at the Hot Politics Lab, let me say that first. Um, I did a project at uh, Maike and uh, Diamantis, and uh, as Diam Diamantis already mentioned, um, I'm going to look into, I looked into the mirror neuron activity in response to in versus out body politicians uh, in an EEG pilot study. So, um, 
communication, of course, is very important for politicians, but um, maybe even as important as nonverbal communication, uh, for example, smiling, uh, it's very important to persuade the voters by doing this. Um, to actually understand nonverbal communication, we need emotion perception. We need to understand the emotion that is shown to us. And therefore we also, um, uh, there's a correlation between the emotion perception and the emotion related facial muscle response or mimicry. Um, Maike um, had a, uh, performed a study in this and subject um, turned out that they smiled to happy in-party politicians compared to happy out-party politicians using facial EMG, suggesting group-specific mimicking behavior. Um, there are actually two types of facial expression. There's the facial mimicry that I just mentioned, uh, but there's also facial mirroring, which is the activation of uh, neural cells. And it is an uh, offline production of actually what is observed. Uh, and it's very important for social cognition. So to be able to understand the intention and emotion of others. <clears throat> These neural cells are actually referred to as mirror neurons um, and they're active during both action execution as well as action observation. So not only when we perform something ourselves but also when we see someone else performing the similar action. This mirror neuron activity can be reflected by mu suppression in the brain. Uh, mu is a frequency band um, one of the bands that actually Diamantis just mentioned, it's a frequency band of 8 to 13 hertz, and these brain waves are actually concentrated around central regions over here. A little bit more about this, when you look at the figure over here, um, there are mirror neurons and they're always sort of active, but during rest they fire synchronously, causing the mu uh, band to reach high amplitude, so a high power. Yet, um, while we, uh, uh, well, while doing during uh, action or observation of someone acting, these mirror neurons uh, start to fire asynchronously, as you can see depicted in red, causing the mu to suppress. So uh, a slightly um, decrease in amplitude, which is called the mu suppression. Uh, and what we want to look at now is whether this mu suppression can be um, actually limited to people we can identify more with. So do we only show mu suppression to, to do we show mu suppression to everyone or do we show it to um, uh, people we can identify with? So in a political context, voters can experience, of course, strong feelings of belongings and attachment uh, to their in-party, yet also feel negative emotions uh, regarding out-parties. Uh, which is an indicator then of uh, effective polarization. So we therefore wonder whether mu suppression is therefore group specific or actually party specific. So our research question was, does one show uh, increased mirror neuron activity in response to mimicking in versus out party politicians? And uh, the hypothesis that relates to it is that yes, uh, mirror neuron activity uh, or mu suppression is increased in response to mimicking in versus out party politicians. Then for our methods, uh, we had stimuli, we used uh, characters for both non-politicians and politicians. For the politicians, we use portraits of Dutch party leaders. Um, and for the non-politicians, we use the Amsterdam dynamic facial expression set. And we used actually the neutral image uh, of uh, these characters 
and we manipulated them uh, so that they 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 started to smile really. We also created videos of this uh, of these images um, for dynamics, uh, which um, what I mean with that is that mirror neurons are mostly active um, when we see someone actually perform something. So there's a motion in it. So we really wanted to include the motion into our um, project as well. So there's an example here. Let me show you. So this is uh, Mark Rutte, obviously. And well, he starts smiling. Uh, there, so this is one of our stimuli. It starts off with a neutral image, then he smiles, and then he, he, smile, he stays smiling for like another two seconds. Um, so in our experiment, uh, subjects um, had to choose two in and out parties based on the question um, uh, on which parties they would most likely vote for during the next election or which two parties they will most likely not vote for during the next election. Uh, and then the um, subjects had to go through a go-no-go -go procedure in which they had to uh, mimic the facial expression which was shown in the video. So there was a video um, and then they were shown uh, a circle which either turned red or yellow. Um, and when it turned yellow, they had to mimic the expression they just saw. And uh, when they were shown red, they had to inhibit the um, mimicry of the, uh, they had to inhibit the expression that was just shown to them. Uh, uh, and also there was an empathy quotient uh, after the experiment. Then for the EEG data acquisition and analysis, we only used the EEG data, EEG data that was measured during the video part, so during this uh, part of the paradigm. Uh, so we actually really measured the intention to imitate uh, and the reason that why we do that is because um, we are not able to actually measure EEG data during the mimicry itself because it, it well, there's a lot of noise coming into the data then, um, a lot of artifacts which we are not able to filter out properly. So we really focused on the attention to imitate. Uh, we measured the mu suppression at the central electrodes. I added a figure over here of the uh, 64 channel cap, which was placed on the participants. And as you can see, we focused on these five electrodes, which are central. Um, then we pre-processed the data and uh, then we uh, performed an FFT, which um, is not really important for now, but it converts the EEG signal to a function uh, in the mu frequency that enables us to analyze the data. Uh, and also important to mention is that we use the early uh, 2,000 milliseconds static image of the uh, character as a within trial baseline. Um, so then as a mu suppression value, we actually took the ratio score of the mu suppression during the late epoch, which is this one, divided by the early epoch, which is this one. Uh, and we did that to control uh, for variability between uh, individuals, for example, um, skull thickness or uh, electrode impedance. Then for our results, uh, well, first of all, uh, mu suppression was confirmed. There was uh, uh, an increased mu suppression during the late epoch versus the early epoch, uh, suggesting that indeed we do need the dynamic part of the stimuli uh, to actually elicit a mirror neuron activity. Then for the uh, character, Unfortunately, there's a non-significant effect of character on mu suppression. 
So um, with, with character, I mean the in-party politician, the non-politician and the out-party politicians, as you can see in the figure over here. On the y-axis, there's the uh, mean log ratio of mu power. Um, and in short, this actually means that the lower this score actually goes, uh, the more mirror neuron activity there is. Um, and as you can probably see in the figure and also in the table, it doesn't really differ that much. And there was a non-significant uh, effect, unfortunately. Um, then for the empathy, um, we took the empathy scores after the experiments and we uh, included that in the, uh, in the uh, analysis as well. Um, I divided the subjects into a low empathy quotient score group and a high empathy quotient score group. Um, and this resulted also not in a significant effect of empathy score on mood suppression, as you can see over here, or an interaction effect with character on mood suppression. Um, yet I do would like to mention that for the um, empathy quotient, uh, which scored high, uh, really, that there is an, well, there is some tendency that they do show more mood suppression towards in-party politicians, so the green, um, the green graph uh, compared to the non-politicians or the out-party politicians, as it also indicated in this table over here. Then as a take-home message, our hypothesis that the mirror neuron activity or misrepression is increased in response to mimicking in versus out-party politicians, unfortunately is rejected. Um, we have not found significant differences in mirror neuron activity in response to mimicking uh, in versus out party politicians or non-politicians. Perhaps this does falsify um, effective partisan polarization in our brain, which is really an interesting topic for discussion, I think. Um, however, I do would like to mention again that people with higher empathy scores have a small tendency to show more mirror neuron activity in response to in-party politicians than in response to out-party politicians or non-politicians, which is also quite interesting. Um, I think this definitely calls for further investigation. Um, obviously, this is a pilot, um, yet I, I think it's really interesting topic and uh, this should definitely be investigated more uh, in more depth. So obviously I want to thank uh, the entire Hot Politics Lab as well as the interns, uh, the fellow interns. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, thank you very much. It was a really cool experience and uh, well, uh, thank you. <laughs> this was my presentation. Thanks, Caroline, uh, for this wonderful uh, presentation and for sharing your uh, very recent uh, insights. Uh, they're really uh, fresh uh, from uh, fresh from the lab, so to say. And uh, and I can also say on behalf of the other uh, co-directors, uh, Bert uh, Bakker and Matthijs Rodin, that. Uh, we're really proud of, uh, of, of all of you. And I'm, I'm personally really uh, excited to see that our lab is conducting these uh, EEG studies is something new uh, for us. And, uh, and I think this will, this will definitely deliver a lot more uh, insights. Um, so uh, for those of you uh, who are new here today, the drill is that we have a Q&A session now uh, until three o'clock. Uh, so that's not a lot of time. So please type your questions into the Q&A box, uh, which is, uh, uh, those are the two balloons uh, uh, on, the, on sort of the black bar, the black zoom bar. 
uh, and so since uh, they appeared and, and oh yeah they, they by the way the the, the people uh, with the videos on they can just raise their their hand if they want to uh, ask a question i mean this 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 virtual hands this one huh? like your real hand um okay uh, let me uh, let me ask you a, a, a question uh i was wondering why you chose the static image as a baseline because if anything, what, what, what Mike has, has shown is that just showing these in or out party leaders themselves most of the time when we actually see something moving so it's the motion part that's really interesting for our brain to perceive so i think in that way it makes sense to to compare the early the uh, the late versus the early uh, epoch um but yeah i think it's also possible that we could have used the fixation uh part uh, which is also within trial baseline but um based on this prior research i think it made sense and uh, i think that's therefore why we chose uh, chose it this way yeah Okay, thanks. Now something strange happened. I saw it. Oh wait, it's in the chat box or not. Please po post your questions in the Q&A box, not in the chat box, okay? Uh, uh, there's a question from Jan Hendricks. Is that any relation or? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> very good. <laughs> well, he has a very good question. Uh, <laughs> would you expect more significant differences by increasing the number of participants? Yeah, I think so. Uh, not only by increasing the number, uh, the number of participants, but also the uh, variety of uh, participants. We had a, a sample of basically all 22 year old students. Um, I think if you uh, definitely take a, uh, a larger sample and then also with uh, more um, priority, also in uh, political preferences, because almost all of them were left wing, um, I think there's, there's definitely more potential to actually see a significant difference. Um, also, people who are politically more involved um, should also be, uh, uh, perhaps there's more potential for them to show more mood suppression or more neuronal activity towards uh, their in-party politicians. Yes, I think so. And uh, uh, to follow up on that, what is, what is the actual end? Because people saw multiple trials, right? Yeah, wasn't, yeah. You said they showed two in-party and out-party leaders, but two of each or two in total? Yeah, two, two of each. Um, so there, every participant showed were shown uh, two in-party politicians and two out-party uh, out politicians. Uh, and it was, this was also repeated four times. Um, and the entire sample consisted of uh, 10, 10 subjects, yes. So you actually, the N is 80 then? Yeah, well, if you look, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, quite a lot yeah uh okay uh next question uh nico berg uh, great to see you nico uh interesting study could you go a little into how the reaction of mirror neurons differs from the facial reaction that Mike measured in her study yeah sure um well i do think that the facial reaction is something um obviously happen, happening online. Um, so that's visible for everyone. Well, the mirror neurons, I think there's maybe possibly um, uh, less control over it, I would say. Um, 
we can definitely try to inhibit uh, mimicry, facial mimicry, but we can't inhibit what happens in our brains or, well, that's an interesting question, but that's maybe another question. Um, so I think um, it's related in some, some sense. Um, and for, uh, let me think, um, yeah, I would say that it's, it's definitely related, um, but perhaps mirror neurons um, is something that is also uh, uh, can show something that you're not even aware of. Um, so it may, it, it's possible that they show more of your, like your subconscious part of your brain. Um, so the more basal reaction perhaps. Um, hmm, I'm not really sure. I think it's a very interesting topic. Also, when we performed this um, this study on a more uh, uh, with with more participants, I think you can definitely like compare the results of your studies, my case, uh, with the results of the current study, uh, and then see what happens then. Yeah. Thanks. Um, a few more questions, but also a few minutes left. So um, I'm going to our world expert in smiling, Patrick Stewart, and he says fascinating research. Azure stimuli seem to show a felt slash Duchenne smile. You know that you can read these questions too, Caroline, right? Okay. Uh, due to the onset timing, do you think a quicker onset might lead to a different response as reflecting a post smile through its timing? Ooh, interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so. If it's just immediately uh, popping up, maybe it will present. Um, but it's also very quick. It's a really short time because the stimulus. I think it looks it looks quite long. But when you see it, it takes a while to process the face in the first place, and then expression changes, of course. But I think it's it's important that you see the face up front, and then the expression changing. Um, while if you would like see immediately the 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 facial expression changing, you could also like miss the first part or something, yeah. um, which I think. Well, we could maybe like shorten the time of, of the uh, the static image, maybe like to one second. Um, yeah, it's in, it's an inter interesting thought, I think. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I have a question from Jordan Mansell from uh, Quebec. Uh, at least last time I spoke to him. Uh, did, did you include additional measures of appraisal as possible controls? If so, which measures? I assume these. You mean self-reported uh, emotions? Ah, right. Uh, no, we did not. We firstly included it. Um, I'm looking at Mikey, but yeah, we first included it, but then excluded it. We also initially had a, another condition, so not only this mimicking um, uh, condition, but we also had like an observation um, uh, um, condition, but we had to um, get rid of it because of the time. Um, but uh, in that uh, in that thing, we in, in that um, paradigm, we we initially included the uh, the uh, um, self-reported self-reported emotion after showing the stimulus of the uh, politicians. Yeah, yeah. But um, ultimately, we had to remove it. But maybe for the for the uh, bigger uh, study, it's definitely a good thing to bring it back again, right, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> it's only three and a half hours now, so why not have more? Uh, Bert, uh, you had a question. <laughs> You're muted. 
Thank you, Carline. Thanks also for this excellent presentation. And uh, guys, if I'm wrong, uh, neither of our parents have ever uh, uh, been at a presentation of us. Uh, so, uh, just like, well. <laughs> so uh, Jan, welcome also, uh, uh, Carline. I have a question. Uh, you have to educate me a little bit here, but suppose that you're more sophisticated or engaged or right wing, is your neural mu suppression different? Is that is that so hardwired? Is that what is that possible in the brain? Or can you do effort to do it better or so? Or how does this work? Because I, I'm a bit puzzled by that. Yeah, really interesting. I think that's also the question. Answer, yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry, really good. That's short. Um, but I think there's there are studies that have shown that um, these 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 difference in musuppression can also be um, based on, uh, for example, uh, uh, when the, the diversion of groups or like the out versus in groups are just made uh, like randomly. So not um, without any uh, uh, um, like stereotypes or something or uh, pre uh, prejudice. Um, so I think these are top down um, uh, processes. Uh, enabling us that it's not, I think, hardwired um, as you uh, as you would as you suggested perhaps. Um, so I think it's changeable and um, therefore very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks a lot, Caroline, uh, and I, I I give the floor to Maika. Yes. Thanks a lot, Caroline. Really great presentation. Really nice to see the results. We've been working so hard for uh, to get. Um, so next presentation is Signal. Um, also super looking forward to, to her presentation. Uh, she is a master student at the Master Brain and Cognition at the UVA. Uh, and she will talk about um, ambitious leaders and how we respond to them and how our brain responds to them. So uh, I will give the floor to you, Sinjau. Thank you, Maike. Um, I will share my screen now. Can you see the slide? Oh, I think so. Okay. Um, sorry, I don't know why it shows like this, but maybe you should share your other screen. I think All that right. if you got okay. to share again, there are two PowerPoints, okay. one big and one small. I just closed the other screen, but I don't know why it's still showing. Or maybe like this. Okay, then is that okay? I think that's a, the yep. best solution I can think of. Okay, cool. Yeah. Hello, everyone. My name is Xingyao, and I'm a master's student from Brain and Cognitive Sciences at UVA. And today I'm very happy to share with you my internship project at Hot Politics Hub. Um, I will firstly briefly talk about the theoretical background behind the project design and the method we use, the hypothesis, and a glimpse into the experimental results. So first of all, um, as we all know, humans are social beings and we form social groups to live together, to better allocate resources and ensure the pro uh, prosperity of our community, we need decision makers who can lead the group. Uh, this was the case from early human society, but also in our modern society, where we have political leaders who hold powers of making decisions for their followers. However, um, we do show preference towards specific type of leaders. 
For example, a study conducted by Kevin Smith and his colleague shows that we show clear preferences towards leaders who are not ambitious and who do not desire leadership at the first place. Uh, because This is because people tend to perceive ambitious leaders as more self-interested and tend to make more unfair distribution of resources. So what uh, Smith and his colleagues do is that uh, they implement a one-shot ultimatum game. Um, in this type of paradigm, you will have a proposer and a receiver. The proposer can make a certain amount of monetary offer and the receiver choose to accept or reject offer. Uh, if the offer is accepted, then a proposer and receiver get the uh, amount of money proposed by the offer. And if it's rejected, both get nothing. Uh, this paradigm also mimics the real world situation where we have political leaders who make decisions and we have followers who can um, follow or punish the leader. And what the original study did is that they manipulate the type of proposer and test how people as receivers respond uh, when different proposers are making a unfair offer. In their case, it's $3 out of 20, if I remember correctly. Um, as a result, they found that the rejection rate of um, the unfair offer is a lot higher when it comes from an ambitious leader when it uh, than when it comes from a non-ambitious leader. And this shows that people have uh, people are more intolerant when unfair decisions are made by an ambitious leader. And in my project, I plan to replicate this study and to furthermore look at the brain signals that can explain this, uh, this phenomenon. Um, this leads us to a very important brain index, that is the medial frontal activity, or in abbreviation, MFN. Um, MFN is a brain signal that is believed to be generated from the anterior cingulate cortex, as shown in a graph, which is also uh, the medial frontal part of our brain. Um, according to the previous literature, it often appears in the time window of 200, around 250 to 350 milliseconds, and a higher ACC activities reflect a negative evaluation of the current situation. So what does this mean? Well, it could mean that the participants, the subjects is um, encountering economic uh, punishment or some types of negative outcomes, or they are probably uh, seeing a situation that does not meet their expectations. And in a study conducted by Boxim and Kramer, they let participants play an automatum game while wearing an EEG cap, and they found that the MFN is more pronounced for unfair offers when comparing to, unfair, uh, to fair offers. Um, yeah, so um, when I say fair offer, it means a 50 to 50% offer, of course. And therefore, uh, Boxim and Kramer's results suggest that MFN can be treated as an index of inequality aversion, namely when people feel averse to uh, unequal allocation of resources. Uh, following the study conducted by Smith and his colleagues, as well as by Boxim and Kramer, I hypothesized that uh, if proposal indeed plays a role in evaluating the offer, then we could also expect that the MFN is modulated by ambitious or not ambitious proposal types. Um, therefore, I have the following hypothesis. Um, on the behavior level, I hypothesize that the acceptance rate of offer will be lower for unfair offers than for fair offers, and will be lower for ambitious leaders than for ambitious non-ambitious non leaders. And the response time will be higher for unfair offers than for fair offers, and it will be higher for ambitious leaders than for non-ambitious leaders. And in the brain level, 
the unfair offer will elicit a more pronounced MFN than fair offers, and this will be modulated by the type of proposal in the trial. And my hypothesis is that MFN will be smaller when the unfair offers come from the ambitious leader than from the non-ambitious leader. This is because if people indeed have a more negative perception towards ambitious decision maker, they would expect uh, those uh, decision makers to give more unfair offer and it's less surprising for them to see the unfair offer indeed. Okay, that's my hypothesis. Then we move to the master's section. Um, in our, uh, in our experiment, experiment, we have a subjects of um, a convenience sample, mostly students from UVA and FU. And in, uh, in total, we have 11 participants. And all of the participants participate in a within subject design experiment. Um, the general procedure is that the subject will first fill in a survey item where they choose a number between one to 10, um, is this item, to indicate how much they want to be the decision maker. And this item is later used to manipulate the condition of different blocks. Uh, of course, this survey item is directly called, quoted from the original study of Smith and his colleagues. Um, well, in the later two blocks, they will play with another participant, which is actually pre-programmed by, uh, by us, who supposedly answered 10 or one as their answer, respectively, corresponding to the ambitious and non-ambitious proposal conditions. And in each block, the participants play 90 trials uh, in which there are 35 to five offer, 33 to seven offer and 31 to nine offer. Uh, the block order is also counterbalanced during the experiment. Here, I also have a single trial of the experiment. So subjects will first see the, uh, the proposal number they're playing with, following by the pr uh, presentation of the offer and then they indicate their response through button pressing at this screen. And we recorded the time-locked ERP signal following the presentation of the offer, which is the screen here marked by arrow on the slide. And here I also have a picture of the raw EEG data that I took at the lab. Um, well, that's for the experimental design. After the experiment, we have all the data and I need to do the pre-processing of the data and uh, to remove the artifacts and drifts in the raw data. Uh, for pre-processing, I clean the drifts by applying high pass and low pass filters. And uh, I also reject all the trials with extremely high or extremely low values. And then I clean the eye blinks using the independent component analysis using the SOBI algorithm, which is planted in uh, EEG lab. It's a analysis software. And um, after there, after that, I pulled all the data. All right, and data with very low quality, such as uh, problem in event code or problems in um, the signal itself are excluded from the study. And this leads to a uh, subject number of uh, a total uh, nine subjects into the final analysis. And for analysis, I pulled data from three relevant electrodes, which are also marked in the right side of the slide is FCZ, CZ, and CPZ, I think. And um, those electrodes reflect a region of interest and I picked those electrodes from previous literatures. Um, I then take the difference waves between unfair and fair offer conditions to, visu to visualize the results. After that, I did a t-test with uh, false discovery rate correction to identify if there are significant time points along the difference wave, if there is any. Um, 
for the behavior result, because I have two um, independent variables, the offer type and proposer. So I subject all the data into a repeated measures ANOVA. In the next few minutes, I will show you some results I got from the data. But since we only finished the data, this data collection this Tuesday, so the result looks quite rough. But still, I think they offer a glimpse into the experiment result of my, um, uh, of my project. Um, so first is the behavior results as shown in the box plot. We can see that almost all uh, participants accept all fair offers. And the very unfair offer, which is the one to nine offer is the least accepted. And the main effect of offer type is significant such that we do see an inequality aversion in our data. But there is unfortunately no significant effect of proposal nor the interaction. Um, however, as showing in a box plot, I think it's still somehow replicate the direction of the original study because we see that people seem to be relatively more tolerant when the unfair offer comes from a non-ambitious proposal. Um, as for the reaction time, the plot seems not showing any difference uh, between the conditions, especially when uh, for people playing with non-ambitious proposals. But I think this might also have something to do with the design itself as uh, during the multiple round games, people might actually develop their own strategy. And in a later stage, they just simply reject or accept offers based on the strategy. Um, so render the reaction time not make a lot of sense anymore. But I will return to this point when we discuss the ERP results. Uh, in this slide, I have the results from the pulled ERP waves um, of the different conditions. Uh, first, I have the plot for three different offers. And as you can see, it starts from the stimulus onset and have a, two, a 200 millisecond baseline. Um, we can see that uh, the difference way between fair offer and the two different uh, and the, an unfair offer um, goes uh, uh, peaks at around 340 milliseconds. It's around here, and it goes negatively, um, suggesting a more negatively going deflection for unfair offers. However, when I did the paired t-test correct, uh, corrected with FTR, I didn't actually find any significant time points along the difference wave. So um, therefore, at this stage, I actually cannot arrive at any conclusion of the effect of offer type on MFN, um, unfortunately. And on the right side, of the uh, right side of the slide, I have two graphs comparing the difference wave per proposal condition. In both condition, um, the difference wave is negatively going in a selective, uh, selected time range. And um, however, the ambitious leader situation does not seem to evoke a smaller, but rather a bigger uh, negatively going deflection. Um, but again, since the statistical task didn't review significant, significant time points, at this stage, I cannot conclude that there is, ad, uh, there is any effect from the proposal type to the MFN as well. Well, but uh, we do see that in previous slides, um, people tend to reject more unfair offers than accept, uh, tend to reject more unfair offers and accept fair offers. One explanation I can think of the, uh, we can think to account for this discrepancy between behavior and the ERP result is that the, sub the subject might learn during the multiple round automaton game and start to uh, adapt certain strategies. So they might always accept or reject certain types of certain types of offer instead of evaluating each offer at the moment of presentation individually. Um, yeah, that's it so far. And as a conclusion, I showed you my attempt to study social decision making using brain signal as an index. 
And the behavior results show that people are indeed averse to inequality, but the rule of compulsory is unfortunately, unfortunately not significant in this replication. Also, the effect of offer type and proposer on MFN is not significant in this replication. Um, for the Q&A session, I also reviewed some problems I found during the, the internship project. So first, I discovered uh, the problem of strategies adapted during gaming, as I also discussed before. And the second problem is that I think we might have the problem of the lack of context of, of proposer. As also coined by Leitner in his article, people might have uh, constructed different internal models of the game. Um, for example, what is the image people having in mind for the ambitious proposer? Whether, it, whether they are playing with Bill Gates, raising funding for his charity, or Donald Trump trying to earn more money would probably also affect their uh, uh, perception. And this lack of context uh, might, be, might also affect the experimental results. And I will be very curious to hear your feedbacks about the Q&A questions, but I'm also happy to discuss with you any aspects of this project. Here is the reference list and thank you for your listening. Thank you, uh, Xingyao. I, I take over the uh, Q&A now from uh, Gijs. Uh, uh, so, um, uh, if there are people in the uh, uh, audience, they can be family members, but they don't have to be family members. Uh, they can uh, type their questions uh, uh, in uh, the Q&A box. Uh, I already see that Diamantis has a question. So I'm yielding the floor to Diamantis. Yeah, thanks, Bert. Thank you, Xingyao. Really nice presentation. Very nice line of work. And thanks for uh, showing us uh, a glimpse of your results already. Uh, it's very interesting to see. So um, I see that, you know, the direction seems to replicate. Um, and given, you know, your point that subjects could be developing specific strategies in the game, we can actually expect that, you know, if you offer more types of offer, uh, it, it could actually give you a more fine-grained picture of these differences. Um, I actually think so, because I also read study using UG as their paradigm in their experimental design. And I think they use like five types of, types of offer and do the analysis for them, for them differently. But I think that would also require a larger power. So, well, it's not very realistic in my pilot study, but I definitely think that would make more sense. Also, I got uh, anecdotal evidence from my participants that um, it's quite repetitive and it's quite boring because <laughs> my experiment is always ranked as the most boring one. And I think adding uh, offers might also make it less boring for them. And uh, just like a follow-up question, thanks. I, I also agree with you. I think that we might uh, be able to, uh, to see some more uh, fine details had we included like more um, uh, contrasts. In the offers and um, a sort of like related question. So in, in your in your study, you have manipulated the ambitious level of the proponent at the block level, so that you have like a block where you have like a non-ambitious um, uh, proponent, and then like a series of trials, and then another block uh, where the the ambitious proponent comes in. So I wonder, had you manipulated this at the trial level, so that you would uh, present you know a, a different type of proponent at each trial, would that uh, perhaps like uh, lead to different results? Would you expect that? I, 
I actually also expect that, but I think that will be harder to implement because uh, in my experiment design, I use one and 10 as the number of the further question to indicate the, the level. But I think if you want to do it trial by trial using different participants, then you have to change this number a little bit because if you always present one and 10, that sounds very artificial, at least for me, then you will need to generate, I think maybe an algorithm that compare the, the question indicated by the, uh, the participants and then use numbers that, um, that that can be compared with their answer and to indicate ambitious and ambitious situation. That's what I'm thinking. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you so much. Uh, there's a question from Matthijs Rodan. Uh, thanks, Xingyao. Very interesting. To what extent do you think leader preferences are moderated by personality? It could be that only people who are relatively modest reject very ambitious leaders. Well, people who are themselves very ambitious will like actually like such leaders. Do you think such a moderation effect is likely? Um, well, I think there will definitely be an effect if uh, if this is included as a moderator because um, the Boxham and Kramer, if I remember their name um, correctly, their study actually also measuring how people feel about fairness. So if they are very concerned about fairness or if they're not, and this. Uh, renders actually a difference in the result because um, um, how, like the individual property of the, the, the participants also affect how they reject and accept the offer. So I think I can't really make a prediction of uh, the question uh, of the question like whether people are more ambitious also like ambitious leader because it could also be the contrary uh, contrary it could be the, the opposite but uh, but I'd say there will definitely be an effect. All right, thanks. There's also a question from Tobias Rohrbach. Uh, I find the approach of the ultimatum game very interesting. You problematize the lack of context in your study. For a future study, how would you make context part of the ultimatum game? Uh, that's a very hard question, uh, actually, for me, because I think it's a problem because uh, when I was uh, discussing the experimental design with the programming expert from university, he asked me this question. And I really couldn't think about a good solution to that. Uh, in an article by Leitner, they did it by telling a whole story to their participants, like what rule you are playing and what rule the, the proposer is playing. And they, they make a very long story about that. That could be possibly a way to deal with it. But I honestly actually have no idea how I can do it in my part. Maybe I can also hear what you think. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, no, I one one thought I have on this is that the, the the advantage of the ultimatum game is that it's that it that it's so stylized, and that's what behavior economists like about it, right? It's may, adding more context on the one end could indeed help, but it might also blur a little bit what people like so much about the ultimatum game. So that I don't know if there's a perfect answer here, but but that that is a trade off to make. Um, Gijs also has a question. I see as his hand, both digital and physical race. So, so maybe two questions even. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks a lot, Xinyao. And uh, uh, it's really excellent uh, work. Uh, I have two questions. Um, first, um, given that that you have some uh, evidence that uh, that your participants became increasingly bored over the experiment 
uh, I just, I, it's more a suggestion. I just want to suggest actually to look at, at the, particularly the EEG effects uh, for just the first round of each individual and see if that, that you know, delivers a different uh, picture. Um, and secondly, uh, I just want to ask you to um, to go back a bit to your uh, results of the 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 the, the of the EEG uh, uh, data and 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 um, look in particular at this uh, moment in time. Yeah, maybe you can just pull it up and then then I then I have, I have to guess my. So uh, if anything, there does seem to be just you know a perceptual difference. In uh, the, uh, the 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 middle offer, right, the five five offer uh, between the non-ambitious proposer and the ambitious proposer, right? This this line is this is uh, this light blue line. It's quite differently behaved if you compare the two yeah. Yeah. Uh, pictures. What what does that mean? Do you, what do you think it means? Well, honestly, I am not sure about that because. Also, uh, I mean, you know, the line is also quite different uh, for this one, but there could be other overlapping ERP signals in this in this range. So uh, what I can do is I get MFN by subjecting these two conditions. So I really just know that difference, but I, I'm not sure how that difference will, will go for this part because I don't know what ERP is in, uh, involved in this part actually. So maybe Diamantis can have an idea on that because he's an expert, I guess. That means that I have to take the floor now. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> well, um, I, I would uh, first of all like I agree with like Heis. There is definitely uh, there, there seems to be a uh, perceptual difference uh, for the fair offer between the ambitious and the non-ambitious proposer. What could that like functionally translate to? Um, I would I would probably. So actually, what electrode is this? What which electrode are we looking at here? Is um, it like CZ or so? Uh, I pulled I pulled the results for th three electrodes. The three electrodes together. Yeah. So right, right. So uh, given that this is um uh, like a, a sort of can you go back like to to your ERP slide? Thanks. So given that you have like this like negative de deflection uh, at around like three hundred milliseconds, um, I also wonder like what 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 this could tell us. I would say that it relates to uh, violation of expectancy. So I would think that um, uh, perhaps the, the respondent there anticipates um, a fair versus non-fair offer from that particular proposer. And in light of evidence that, that contradicts their anticipation, their expected um, outcome, you, you get like this like stronger uh, division. So that, that would be like my first read, but I would also have to think a little bit about it and see data from other pooled electrodes around to, uh, to make a more clear case. Yeah, and it's specifically because this is about, uh, these ERPs are, are about expectancies, that, that if you play multiple rounds, some expectancy may, you know, um, affect the, the, the responses. And, uh, and but yeah. yeah, so yeah, it could also be, you know, you could also look at actually in the second round how people, you know, what, what did they see before and what do they see now? And if there's a difference, then Indeed, that's the way to do it. Yes, guys. Yeah. Okay, there's uh, time maybe for uh, one question. Um, 
if somebody has a question, uh, feel free to type it. Um, Xingyao, in the meantime, uh, I do have a question for you and it relates to, to the replication component, right? So on the one hand, seem to be some deviations, but on the other hand, the paradigm is so stylized. So, you know, honestly, is that really where we should expect a lot of the differences? But what we know from replications is often that the effect size on average in the social sciences at least goes by half. The, the effect size uh, just drops tremendously. If you reflect upon that, and if we would assume that, and assuming that the deviations are not so big, how many participants was the, uh, the, were in the original studies and how many do you think you need then if you would assume that the effect size goes by half to really sort of, sort of reliably detect these effects? And you know you can just give me your best guess. Uh, okay, my best guess. Because the original, uh, I mean, there is actually a quite huge difference between the original study and my study as well. Okay. Because the original study is purely behavior and it's also one short automatic game. So they did it like for, I think a lot of people, I would say. Maybe, um, I don't remember the specific number, but I think it, I remember it's a quite a huge number. That is, I think, not very realistic if you're going to replicate it, this using EEG. Because EEG, you have like, for each participant, we did almost almost an hour, hour for each of the experiments. So I don't think I can find as much participant as in original study in this case. But to repl replicate the EEG finding, um, I would say probably 20 because that's the original EEG study what they're using, I guess. But I, I really don't have a very best, uh, the, the best guess for this question. No, so, but if you would think about pulling, pushing this forward, I would really think about what were the effect sizes in the study, EEG study you tried to build upon and, and, and really based on that, take at least double the participants or, or by design, get at least double the number of trials so that you get the number of, of observations so that you, you, you sort of anticipate a little bit that the effect sizes are going to, are going to be smaller, especially if these original studies weren't pre-registered. Like most of the replication studies I've seen across any science discipline seem to suggest that the moment you start to pre-register and replicate, the effect size become a lot smaller than in the original study. So that's just, but I don't know if you're going to take this forward. Um, I want to also, uh, given that there are no more questions, uh, compliment you uh, on an excellent presentation and also uh, just take the floor to also thank Carline who gave the first presentation because they were really good. Uh, so uh, thanks for that. That was really impressive. Um, and uh, now Michael will introduce the last set of speakers of today, but actually the last set of speakers of the academic year. We're almost starting our well-deserved holiday, but bear with us for a little bit so that we uh, give all the attention they deserve. Micah, the floor is yours to introduce the last, but definitely not least speakers of our year. Yeah, you already gave a really great introduction. So a very special last presentation, last but not least, uh, by Christian Ramlo and Bob Wink. Um, as they're both also master students of the, at the UVA Brain and Cognitive Sciences, and I've been doing this project actually together, but then looking at different uh, parts or different responses in the brain. And um, yeah, they've been working together with Diamantes. And um, yeah, well, um, I will uh, not introduce you any further. The floor is yours. <laughs> Thank you, Micah, for the great introduction. Uh, let me share my screen. Um, where is it? 
Yeah, is it visible like this? Okay, great. So hello everyone. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the presentations uh, so far. So me and Chris, uh, we have been working with Diamantis on the EEG correlates of the ideological mind, and we are excited to tell you more about it. So with the current situation, it has become clear that individuals form ideas and impressions about the world in a different manner than others. Uh, some form strong beliefs and adopt extreme ideologies, uh, such as the denial of the effectiveness of vaccines, uh, while others do not. Uh, and we were wondering, why do some people seem more susceptible? And this points to a bigger question, namely, how do high-level extreme beliefs relate to low-level cognitive operations? And this is exactly what we are interested in. Uh, in the framework we used, we theorized that lower-level operations map on higher-level concept, concepts like political beliefs and ideologies. But also, uh, in turn, ideologies, we think, can steer emotion and cognition. So there is like a bi-directional relationship. Um, so we are wondering, uh, do people with an ideological mind show neural differences in evidence processing and decision-making? Uh, and this would point to support for the idea that lower level cognitive operations are related to higher level beliefs. And to investigate this, together with Diamantis, we designed a pilot, uh, which took place this June with 12 participants, um, of which we are busy analyzing the data right now. And the full scale project will likely take place in October. Uh, and to show you how we have done the study, we will first inform you on our metho methodology behind measuring the ideological mind, um, the beat, uh, which is like first the ideological mind, um, and then the beat stats, which, which is a paradigm in which people make decisions under circumstances with insufficient evidence. But Chris will tell you more about that later. And we will also have EEG measurements. And we hope by encapsulating attitudinal, behavioral, and neural measures, uh, to really decrease the gap between political and cognitive phenomena. So before we delve into the beat steps specifically, how did we conceptualize the ideological mind? Uh, so the ideological mind has been measured on the basis of five concepts, and we chose these five concepts on the basis of a variety of literature. Uh, first, we have cognitive rigidity, and this is overall hypothesized to be an underlying trait for adopting strong ideologies. So we measured that in the survey. And we also have need for cognition and need for cognitive closure. And these are also attitudinal assessments of thinking styles, which are hypothesized to relate to altered belief forming, or actually they are about how people form beliefs. And then the last two, uh, conspiracy mentality and political orientation, they relate more to actual beliefs people hold, so more the content of their beliefs. And importantly, we will also use political orientation as a manipulation in the BEATS task. Uh, and Chris will tell you more about that right now. So the behavioral part of our experiment consisted of the BEATS task. And the BEATS task is a probabilistic inference paradigm that emulates decision-making under circumstances with insufficient evidence. And it thus also closely resembles the process with which individuals arrive at faulty conclusions. In the BEATS task, participants get to draw beats from two different jars, as you can see here in the picture. And these jars have uh, two color beats with inverse distribution. So in one jar, there's a majority of dark beats, in the other one, light beats. And um, participants, based on their samples, then need to find out which jar they're actually drawing beats from at the moment, because they don't see the jars anymore. And this paradigm has, in the past, mostly been used to research 
the jumping to conclusions bias in uh, individuals with schizophrenia, because this was found to be involved in delusion and people with delusions seem to make their decision after maybe one or two draws of beats, which is incredibly soon. In our paradigm, we framed this as an election instead of just drawing beats. So uh, these jars were conceptualized as ballots and people draw votes from them. And to understand this better, because I think this is quite difficult to grasp conceptually, I will guide you through the steps that participants go through in the experiment now. Can you, okay? Oh yeah, there it goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so first uh, on a screen, participants get to sample beats, as I said. For example, the first sample they would get when they uh, indicate with a button would be a dark one here. That is one vote. And they continue with that. And the second one would be a light one, for example. And they can sample up to nine times. But they can stop at any moment. Whenever they think they're ready to make their decision, they can again indicate that with a button. And then they get to the choice screen. And here in this case, they uh, need to determine who they think is the winner of the election. Because instead of just choosing the jar, they indicate the majority color of the jar that they think they're drawing from. After that, they also um, indicate their certainty about the prediction, but that doesn't, that's irrelevant for now. And eventually they receive feedback on their decision, whether the prediction was correct or not. And in total participants go through a hundred trials of this, which sounds like an insane number, but it actually doesn't take that long. Usually it's done in about 30 to 40 minutes. And um, after 50 trials, we also introduce a text manipulation. And this manipulation depends on what participants in the pre-survey indicated as their political orientation. So on the left-right spectrum, uh, when a participant is left, they're presented with a manipulation in which um, we tell them that one of the parties in the election is from the very far right. And we hope that with that, we activate uh, reactive effectance and political ideology. And during this beats task, we recorded EEG. And here in that beautiful picture, you can see Bach and I practicing EEG on each other in the beginning of uh, the data collection, which was a lot of fun actually. And I know it looks insanely creepy, but that syringe is just used to insert gel into the electrode sockets. So uh, there was no uh, injection whatsoever. And um, for the EEG recording, we used the uh, BioSemiActive2 recording setup in which uh, we attach 64 electrodes to each participant's skull. And I just want to stress again here, this is an exploratory approach. In the past, the BEATS task has uh, rarely been combined with uh, EEG measures. So this is all uh, pretty novel territory. And uh, we're going to divide the analysis into an ERP part, which I'm going to cover, and oscillatory activities, which is Bobke's specialty. And now first, I will tell you a little bit about the ERPs that we're looking at. And uh, luckily Diamantes already introduced you into uh, to the concept. ERPs are event-related potentials. So they're always locked to certain steps within the experiment. And here you see again, an overview of the BEATS task. And we are going to look at three different ERPs for now. That's the preliminary selection. And the first one is the P300. And the P300, emerges about 300 milliseconds after a stimuli of interest. And here we're going to look at uh, the samples. 
and the P300 is uh, set to represent surprise and or prediction errors. So we think that this will be a good estimate, first of all, to see how engaged the participants were during the task. And also um, if they, for example, show surprise about a certain beat color early on in the trial, that might give us an indication of how soon they came to an internal conclusion already. And very briefly, the other two ERPs, one of them is the DPN, the decision preceding negativity. This uh, we measure right before participants indicate their choice on who the winner of the election is. And this is set to represent uh, awareness of the level of uncertainty, which is quite a mouthful, but we think that people who very quickly jump to conclusions might have an impairment of uh, monitoring their own uncertainty. And the final ERP is the feedback-related negativity. This we measure right after the feedback screen. And this is set to encode sensitivity to feedback, specifically pronounced after negative feedback. And it is shown to be decreased in impulsive risk-taking behavior. So this could also be a very interesting measure for this specific question we have for this experiment. Yeah. Uh... So as for my part, I will investigate oscillatory activity um, associated with both task-related epochs and resting state measures. Uh, so both epochs that relate to the task and resting state measures that are independent of the task. And in my analysis, which is exploratory as well, I have decided to focus on multiple frequency bands, uh, which will reflect rational thinking, emotional involvement, approach or avoid avoidance motivation and cognitive flexibility. Uh, this is all a lot for such a presentation, so for now I will just point one out. Let me see if I can go to the next slide. Yes. Um, and that is the parietal alpha and frontal theta ratio, uh, which is supposed to reflect rational versus non-rational thinking, uh, in which decrease in parietal alpha is supposed to reflect increased intuitive thinking and increase in frontal theta is supposed to reflect increased rational thinking. Uh, and here you can see my hypothesized differences. So this is not real data. Uh, this is from another study. Uh, between the two conditions in the task. So between the neutral version and the political version of the task. And in the neutral version of the task, I expect that the participants will think in a mostly rational way. So people will recruit cognitive control, working memory and focus attention. And this will result in increased frontal data power. And then when the task turns political, so the votes start to reflect political uh, affiliation, I expect individuals to become less rational uh, because more is at stake and biases could occur, which will make them less receptive to current information. Uh, that is, for example, not in line with what they would want. Uh, this will result in release of cognitive control uh, and working memory as people start to think more intuitively. And this is then reflected in a decrease of parietal alpha power, so decrease of power in alpha waves around the center of the brain. Uh, however, this is exploratory, so I will investigate the effect in both ways. And then as for the analysis of our data, we will use the EPOS pipeline for EEG in order to support a more standardized reproducible method for analyzing EEG. And this will be done, or actually we're already doing it in MATLAB. Um, and in order to relate the ideological mind to performance on the BEATS task and its EEG correlates, we will do a mixed effects analysis by modeling random effects in R. Uh, and in this, both performance across conditions as within subjects factor will be considered uh, as well as uh, group characteristics as between subjects factors. And we will take reaction times and accuracy into account as well. 
we have to emphasize that the analysis is still in early steps as data collection just now finished, as was the case for the other interns as well. And since data collection just now finished, it would be way too early to draw or jump, <laughs> excuse the pun, to conclusions. And we uh, still expect to see neural activity differences between and within participants, for example, regarding their latency and amplitude in earpiece. And accordingly, we will then tailor the main study. For example, we would expand or specify the preliminary list of earpiece and oscillatory bands. However, what we can provide you with is a very, very small and um, yeah, very brief glimpse into some of the behavioral data from the BEATS task. And on the very left in the table, you can see um, the average draws participants took for each um, manipulation. So the first 50 draws without the political manipulation and then the next 50. And the mean in the first version is 6.3 and the second 6.6. And that is uh, hardly any difference so far. We tested it, it was not uh, significant. Um, uh, however, if you look at differences between subjects here, you can see in the table that, for example, participant number eight, on average throughout the whole experiment, only drew 4.39 beats, whereas participant number five on average drew 8.3. So that is a huge difference. And what would be the next step here uh, is looking at their survey scores, for example, see if there are also ideological differences. And then it would be very interesting to see whether their uh, neural correlates actually differ as we hypothesize. And this is also summed up again here in the graph on the right. Um, but again, keep in mind, these are only data on excerpts from this pilot. So really small numbers so far. So uh, we cannot really draw any conclusions from this so far. Um, but to sum it all up, we hope that with this study, we uh, contribute to a better understanding of how differences in cognitive processes related to decision-making, judgment, and inference influence the ideological brain and vice versa. And you can see our references on the <laughs> next slide. These will also be uploaded if you're interested. And uh, with this, we would like to thank you for your attention. And we'd be very happy about questions or suggestions from you. Um, but before we get into that portion of the Q&A, here are also a few things that we would like to, to raise and ask you for your opinion. Um, maybe some of you have some more suggestions on the conceptualization of the ideological mind. Uh, I think this seemed like quite a lot, but we actually really boiled it down to these five measures. That was quite a, quite a process and is based on a lot of literature. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe some of you have more ideas on this. And also we're always open for more EG suggestions. We can uh, expand our preliminary list of uh, focal, focal points so far. And um, lastly, very broad question. Um, yes, maybe you can share your opinions on this too. And with that, I think Babke, you wanted to say something too, right? We, we would also like to thank you for the, for the opportunity for this internship. And we had a really great time. And yep. thank you to Diamantes, of course. Our yeah, thank you, <laughs> Alrighty, um, let's um, open the floor for Q&A. I see that uh, Xing, maybe you can unshare your screen. Yes. Um, a couple of questions here. The first is for Xing Yao. And remember those listening, um, they can put a 
questions in the Q&A box. Xingyao, your question, you can speak. Yeah, I actually have a question about the ERP. I think we are looking at FRN P300, right? Um, did you also look at other ERPs? Like, I think maybe emotion related. I don't know. It's just, it's just uh, my guessing that people might show some emotional related uh, ERPs during the um, political version of it. That'd be an interesting addition, actually. Yeah, because we were aiming at um, effective reactants, as we said. Um, so we, we did include the DPN and the FRN next to the P300. Um, and it's also always a struggle to uh, limit it to certain ERPs without it becoming a monstrosity of a test and just including way too much. But we could yeah, definitely look into that, see if... So, yeah, I think that would be interesting. And maybe then you can take a, also an exploratory approach and looking at your data and to find maybe there are some ERPs that you are not expected, but see, uh, but actually you see in your data, maybe that would be interesting. Cool, thank you. Can I mention something quick about that? Uh, for my uh, oscillatory activity, uh, I also plan to look at delta waves, which are suggested to also be involved in emotional involvement. So maybe we will be able to see something there as well. I hope. Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> also to myself. <laughs> Great. Next question is from Gijs. There's one hand, so one question. Let's see if I can keep it to one question. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, uh, Babke and Chris. Uh, That's really interesting uh, stuff. I'm curious to see what uh, what will emerge from it. Uh, I would like you to reflect a bit on um, the way you distinguish between rational and emotional apples, things. Um, you seem to, to, to evoke, to understand this really as a dichotomy. Uh, although I don't think that's yeah I already see the the head shake so I don't think that's quite what you what you mean uh, 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 with that so maybe you could just say a bit more about how you how you perceive this distinction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, rush, I think rational intu and intuitive thinking are mostly ways um, that they put it, um, but uh, actually, uh, like frontal increased frontal data power. Uh, it actually means uh, recruitment of cognitive control, uh, working memory and focused attention. And that more has to do uh, with like being in a moment, like actually evaluating the beats uh, one by one. And then um, if you look at pyrotol alpha, uh, there there's a, supposed to be a release of cognitive control and working memory and more recruitment of long-term memory uh, and also less attention. So with that, uh, you could, in a way, uh, suggest that biases occur, for example, the confirmation bias, because people have less attention to, for example, beats of the, of the political orientation they do not agree with. Um, so in that sense, it could be considered intuitive, but it's actually not intuitive. It's more a way of like less rational thinking or more looking away from the like purely um, factual data. I hope I made that clear. Um, okay, um, thank you. Uh, I also have a question and that relates to uh, the ideological mind um, because how I read the measures that you've used, you're looking at personality traits um, that have at best a weak relationship with ideology. 
if your interest is in ideology, why not just measure ideology to the best extent that you can, rather than take proxies that in meta-analysis correlate 0.1, 0.2. I know Leroy has, Schmigrot has made the case that it explains some variants, but if your core idea is ideology, I would not waste time measuring things that are weak proxies of ideology. But if you want to measure these things, then say, well, we're looking at personality differences in responding to these differences, which is a very interesting idea. But right now, calling it the ideological mind would per se me as a reader not convinced that because it's such, they are such weak proxies. So my question is, are we now looking at personality or ideology? And if it's ideology, you'd really have to make a strong case that these, that these are actual proxies of ideology. Yeah, that is a great suge suggestion, actually, uh, to include more measures uh, for ideology. Uh, I think our point here was that we wanted to have like uh, sort of like a more general measure of ideology. That is also why we have pretty vague measures. Uh, the conspiracy mentality doesn't uh, like doesn't reflect like a specific conspiracy uh, theories, but just more like a conspiracy mentality, like attitude, if you could put it like that. Um, yeah, but I think it's really interesting to include more uh, actual ideologies, because I think you're right. We're also uh, looking a lot at, uh, yeah, personality. Uh, I don't know, maybe Chris, you want to add something? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think our rationale behind this was that uh, cognitive fragility, as also uh, Leon Smigrod proposed it, was the underlying trait that is uh, actually the you could almost call it the source of, of a lot of the other measures that we have. And um, I think that the distinction between personality and ideology is also um, not that clear cut according to uh, the, the term, the ideological mind is what we um, um, refer to also from uh, Leos Migrot, um, that those stand in a bi-directional relationship, which all together make up the ideological mind, but I see that the term itself is a little misleading. And since we don't include that much on ideology, uh, ideology itself, we should probably expand on that. Yeah, I, I would just call it what these measures are and not make the claim that they are, you know, at best, also in Leo's work, at best they're weakly related to ideology. And so, and we don't know, and it's a big puzzle of which comes first and what, how causal are these things? And so, so I, I think if you want to move this, this road, uh, call, call the messages what they are. And, and that's interesting, right? So conspiracy thinking, rigidity. And yeah, that has maybe somewhat more present among people on the right, maybe, but maybe also on the extremes. Like we actually don't know. So you, you, I would avoid just going into that the direction. There's a second question. If guys, do you still have a, do you have another question or your hand still raised from the previous one? I have a short question related to this. So if we want to in these ERPs get at is it essentially between factor because it's an individual difference, right? How many observations like what, what we need probably is it realistic to to theorize that those low and high on rigidity differ in ERP? Do we get enough observations in these in this study to really get distinguished the people on that are low and high or is it because right now we're looking at small numbers but many of these uh, EEG studies have relatively small numbers so 
do we need to do this differently or how, how do you do this? In terms of uh, trial numbers for EEG, uh, these should definitely be enough. Um, I think the main study later on is going to have around 80 participants and also 100 trials per participant are uh, quite a high number for EEG studies. And since we also look at within comparisons, also in the European, not only between, um, this should be possible with this number. Did I answer the question with that? I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I probably my question is way too big to 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 address in the in the last three minutes of uh, today. But uh, I'm thinking about I mean the, this idea of the the ideological mind. I mean at least as as how I how I understand this is that that you know our brains have theories of how the world how the world works and and this is reflected in 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 in, in, in sig all kinds of signals you can find uh, but also in, in terms of surveys if you you question people or in terms of experiments and then. Uh, but to call something an ideological mind, to me at least, suggests that uh, that politics has a very big imprint on this theory of the world that uh, uh, people have. And I mean, that, that that's also the literal meaning of, of ideology, of course. But um, I mean, for lots of people, politics isn't important at all, right? They, they just don't care. Uh, and, and lots of other things that happen around them, the, are important to them. So perhaps is the ideological mind not in itself uh, something that varies from person to person? I was just wondering on your reflections on that. Um, yes, <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. Like it absolutely varies from person to person. Uh, and I think it can also vary in a person throughout their lives. Um, yeah, I actually completely agree. Um, and I also think it, it doesn't only have to be like political um, ideology, it could also, I think like we kind of gave the example of conspiracy thinking as well, uh, that is also like a way in which people uh, show resistance to other uh, standpoints, for example. Um, so yeah, I actually agree with you. Okay. Um, I'm going to cut, cut it off because we, we need, we're running out of time and I want to uh, take the opportunity to quickly thank uh, Christian uh, at least for uh, for organizing all the Zoom meetings, and I also want to take the opportunity to thank Gijs and uh, uh, the other members of the Hot Politics Lab for uh, this year's uh, sessions. Uh, Gijs will do the official outro, but I want to thank uh, thank you also personally here and on the record that uh, I think we have uh, made uh, the the the. Uh, a good thing out of this uh, online environment and a productive uh, environment that uh, I thought was stimulating. So I want to personally thank you for uh, all this and uh, hopefully next week, Friday, we can actually uh, um, uh, celebrate this a little bit. But now guys, you do the official outro for everything. <laughs> thanks a lot, Bert. And thanks, uh, Babke and Chris, for your presentation. And I think you're the only two who've not yet received the Hot Politics Lab coffee mug. And so... Uh, um, uh, maybe if someone is in the office next week, they can they can they can pick it up from my office, and then you can you can you can receive them officially on Friday uh, when we have the hot politics lab party. Um, okay, uh, so that's the end of the year. I mean, uh, whew, I'm, I'm I'm almost getting uh, getting emotional, uh, <laughs> and it's been uh, it's been a bizarre and and, and fantastic year uh, in in many ways, and I totally agree with Bert that. Uh, 
uh, it's been really great to have uh, lots of people we, who we would never have in the lab because, you know, they live in the United States or in Australia or whatever. And uh, uh, both in terms of presentations, but also in terms of the participants uh, that we've had uh, that, 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 you know, that, that, that are participating sometimes very early in the morning uh, in, these, in these labs. So I really uh, want to thank everyone for their uh, participation. And, you know, if you miss us over the summer, because we won't be having any more meetings uh, until the 3rd of September, that's the first new meeting of the year. Uh, we don't have a schedule yet, but we will communicate it to you. Um, we don't quite know yet how it will look like, but there will be definitely a online component. Um, but if you miss us over the summer, don't forget all our uh, talks are recorded. Uh, you can find them on Spotify or YouTube. So if you're you know, more into audio or more into visuals, is something for, for all of you. And, uh, uh, and so you can, you can watch everything that we did here uh, uh, in the last year. So uh, with that, uh, I just want to wish everyone a great summer and uh, stay healthy and stay safe and uh, hopefully party a little bit more than we did in, uh, in the last few months. Okay, have a good day and see you in September. <laughs>